So it's Advent Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, and I'm excited about it. It's one of my favorite times of year. In the church calendar, it's actually the new year. It begins with Advent, and Advent simply means the arrival, or it means coming, the coming one. And so we do two things in the Advent season that should become a habit for the church during this time of year. And the two things we do uh, are uh, to are summed up in a little phrase that we use a lot in a certain situation that I want to bring up to remind you and help you remember uh, what we do in Advent uh, season, and that is when you teach a young child to cross the street, you say this phrase all the time, and it's something that we should do every time we're in the Advent season as a church. When you teach a young child to cross the street, the very first thing you say is, remember to Look both ways, right? Remember to look both ways. And in Advent season, that's what the church does. We look both ways. First, we look to the past, that God came to earth in the form of a baby, and he came to earth, and uh, Jesus came to earth as um, God and human uh, to save us from our sins. And then we also look to the future. So we look to the past, and we look to the future. We look to the future of when he's going to come again. And the kingdom that he established and inaugurated when he first came, when he comes, he's going to finalize and fulfill. And so the Advent season is the time for the church to look both ways. Look to see what God has done and look to see our coming king and what he will do. And so it's an exciting, exciting time. And so to help us remember to look both ways, we're beginning a new series that will run four weeks to the time of Christmas, and it's called The Songs of Christmas. And the reason we're calling it the Songs of Christmas is because we're going to look at people's lives who are impacted by what we just sang about, the goodness and the greatness of God. And when they were impacted by the goodness and greatness of God, they were so overwhelmed by what they were experiencing and God's goodness and greatness that it caused them to break forth in song. It caused them to sing of the goodness and the amazement of who God is and what he's done. And we're going to look each week, these next four weeks, as someone who is, during the Christmas story, who is overwhelmed to the point of song and singing for joy, which is something I think we all desperately need, not only in our personal lives, but in this world as well. So I'm excited about this series that we look at called The Songs of Christmas, and that I pray that we encounter God the way that these people that we're going to look at in the scriptures encounter God, that he would cause within us to be so overwhelmed by his goodness and his greatness that would burst forth in song uh, for, from us. As I was preparing for this, it made me think of a question. And the question is this, when was the last time you were overwhelmed? When was the last time you were overwhelmed? Now, not by sorrow and not by sadness or suffering. We get overwhelmed by a lot of things, don't we? But think about this. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the presence or the goodness of God? When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the presence or the goodness of God? Some of you may be able to recall a time that comes quickly to mind. Some of you may be saying, I need more time, but I'm sure it's there. Some of you may be here saying, I don't know if I ever was overwhelmed by the goodness and the presence of God. Well, my prayer is that over the course of this series, between now and what we celebrate on Christmas Day, that many, many here across your church will be, experience a moment when they are overwhelmed by the goodness and the presence of our God. 
that he would give us that as a Christmas gift, that he'd give to Crossview Church moments where we are overwhelmed by God's goodness in his presence and what he's done in our lives. In our text today, we're going to see that happen to a teenage girl named Mary. Mary was impacted and overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of God. And when she was, she burst forth in a song called Mary's Song, or sometimes it's called the Magnificat. I want you to see it as she was overwhelmed with hope. If you have a Bible, please open it up to Luke chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, Luke is in towards the back. It's in the New Testament. So if you go and open up about three-quarters away and go Matthew, Mark, and then you'll hit Luke. If you hit John or Acts, you went too far. And we're going to be focusing on Luke chapter 1, the big number 1, in verses uh, 35 to 55. If you're using a Bible we have for you here in the worship center, I'll be on page 908. 908 in the Bible here in the worship center. So I want us to first look at what uh, Mary experienced and then what caused her to burst forth in this song, being overwhelmed by God's goodness. And we're going to see in this song that she sings four things that she was overwhelmed with. Four things that she was overwhelmed with. But before we get there, I want to look at the setting that Luke gives us. First, look up in verse 35. So uh, an angel named Gabriel came to Mary, told her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, to the Son of God, who would take away the sins of people. And verse 35 says, The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the angel tells her that you are going to become pregnant with the Son of God, the Messiah, who's come to take away the sins of the world. And when that happened, Mary received this, and it overwhelmed her to the point of song. Look at the setting that continues in verse 39. Let's read verses 39 to 45 together. It says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside of her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. Blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill what he spoken to her. So God comes and tells Mary, you are going to bring forth through your birth, through this birth, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as, it, uh, as that news hit her, she was overwhelmed. And this whole experience happened when Elizabeth was about six months pregnant. And Bible scholars tell us the first thing Mary did is set off on a four-day journey to go visit her uh, relative Elizabeth. So God comes and tells her what he's going to do, a fulfillment of many, many prophecies throughout the thousands of years. You see, Mary was raised in a good Jewish home, so she knew the Old Testament scriptures very, very well. She would have most of that memorized. She would 
ponder it all the time. And part of the scriptures that she would have memorized were ones talking about how God one day was going to send his chosen one, the Messiah, to earth to save people from their sins. And that had to be ingrained in her heart and mind. And now to know that she was going to be the instrument to fulfill prophecies that were spoken thousands of years ago had to completely overwhelm her. So she sets out on this four-day journey, and and many scholars believe that while she was on this journey, she was pondering all these things that God was doing and saying, and she was receiving what God called her to do, and then what she probably was doing was she was singing a song and praying a prayer. It was a common song and prayer that the Jewish people would sing or pray when God did something great, and that song is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want you to put your finger in Luke. We're going to go back there. But I want you to see the beginnings of this song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you have a sanctuary Bible, you can uh, move to page 234. And we're going to look at what's called Hannah's song. Hannah was a lady in the Old Testament that God put his hand on in a powerful way. And she was overwhelmed. And she burst forth in this song. And we're going to look at the first three verses in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, Hannah prays this, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, God coming to save his people. There is no one like you, Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And the song goes on to verse 10. You see, Hannah burst forth in song because God moved in her in a powerful way. And this would be a song that Mary would know very, very well. She would have every word of that memorized. And so as she's on her way to go visit Elizabeth, many people believe that she was singing this song in her heart about what God did. She was rehearsing that in her mind, these words that Hannah wrote that uh, burst forth out of Hannah's heart, now bursting forth into Mary's heart. One of the songs that I love that I hear on the radio a lot this time of year is Mary, Did You Know? I just love this song where it talks about all the things that Jesus did and what Messiah was going to do and And uh, did Mary know all those little details? Probably not, but I can tell you this, based on what we saw here, Mary knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that she was called by God to do something great, and that is to bring the Messiah into the world. Mary knew the baby that she was carrying. Mary knew that this was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary knew that this was God's plan, and he was using her to bring Jesus to earth What a powerful, powerful thing. So she goes and she encounters Elizabeth. And notice that I love how Elizabeth isn't jealous. Elizabeth isn't upset that it wasn't me and it was Mary. Uh, There's no jealousy. The humility you see in verse 43 where she says, How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The humility that's surrounded around Jesus' coming to earth is just so powerful. And so when Elizabeth said that, I picture in Mary, you know, when someone gives you empathy or sympathy, it kind of just melts your heart, right? And so when Elizabeth acknowledged what God was doing in Mary, it had to make Mary's heart come alive. It had to be an affirmation and confirmation of what God told to me, Mary, in private now is affirmed out in public, and it had to make her heart just sing, and that's what happened. 
She's overwhelmed by the grace of God and she exclaims in the song that we're going to look at now called Mary's Song. And in this song, there are four things that overwhelm Mary. And I want to look at each of them. The first one is Mary was overwhelmed in praise. She was overwhelmed in praise to God. Verses 46 to 48. And Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She praises God because she's overwhelmed by his goodness and his greatness, and by his mercy he chose Mary, and it creates this humility that impacts her greatly. And she bursts forth in song, but it's not affecting just her mind and her mouth. It's affecting her whole being. Look at verse 46 where it says, My soul praises. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices. You see soul and spirit. And in the original wording of this text, soul and spirit are referring to the same thing. Those are almost the same exact words. And what it's saying there is that the entire part of Mary's inner person is doing these things. All of who she is, her total being, her total self, she's saying, all that I am and all that is within me praises the Lord. Everything about me magnifies the Lord. She's so overwhelmed by the goodness and greatness of God that it impacts every cell in her body. And every cell in her body bursts forth in worship song to God alone for what he did and who he is. Look at the first one. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. Literally, it reads, my soul makes great the Lord. My soul makes great the Lord. Or my soul enlarges God. It can be rephrased that, it can be phrased that way. My soul enlarges God. Now, people say, how can we as human beings enlarge God? How can we make God great? God is already great. We as humans can't make him great. And that's true. However, he can be made larger in a person's life. He can be made greater in a human soul. He can be expanded. One of the songs I love that we sing this time of year is, Let every heart prepare him room. Wouldn't it be an amazing Christmas gift this season if God took the people of Crossview Church and expanded their hearts to have more of God enlarged within them when we look and see who he is and what he has done? God can be made enlarged in a person's life. We make God larger in our souls and our lives when we take into our thinking a new aspect of his greatness. When we take into our thinking a new aspect of his greatness and who he is, he is made larger within our hearts and causes us to worship deeper and stronger. You see, we will never fully grasp the knowledge of God. He is God, and so we will never ever fully grasp his knowledge. But as we take a lifetime to learn more about who he is and ponder his ways, we can enlarge our heart day by day, week by week, year by year, as we spend time in this earth between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second, between the time of now and the time we see him again when we die. We can give a lifetime to turning to his word to have our hearts enlarged to contain more of the greatness of God. And if we make that our life's mission, we will get to a spot where we will be bursting forth in praise 
for how amazing and awesome God is. When we read the Bible, when we worship, when we pray, when we see God move in our life, our hearts can be enlarged to the greatness of God. What a Christmas gift it would be to have your thoughts about God expanded, to move beyond where you currently think about God now to something greater. A.W. Tozer said the greatest thing about us is what we think of God. It's the most important thing about us. Think about how awesome it could be if God this Christmas season expanded who he is in our hearts and our minds. In March, April 2016, this issue of Psychology Today, get this, it's not a church or a Christian publication, Psychology Today attempted to give readers several reasons why they, can cult- they should cultivate a sense of awe and wonder. In their article, It's Not All About You, social scientists have found that when people experience awe and wonder, they feel more empathetic, loving, and more connected to other people. Do you know why that is? That's how God designed us. When we sense awe and wonder of who God is, it changes us to the point where it moves among our relationships that we have with other people. See how great God is? When we have our eyes look to God and we see and we understand a new aspect of who he is, it transforms us more into the people he longs for us to be. He longs for us to be a part of. This uh, holiday season, this Thanksgiving, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We had, a, as a family, had a great Thanksgiving. We went down to see our uh, extended family in Illinois, and so we had Thanksgiving down there. And I'd say about a couple months before Thanksgiving, um, I've been dealing with an issue with a family member, a relative, not in my immediate family, but one in my extended family, where the relationship between me and this person were, was broken. There's this broken relationship that's taking place, and it kind of went sideways. And, and do you know how when you're in a family, an extended family, how easy it can be to have broken relationships or relationships go sideways, right? It's, some, it's almost like a, a, a thing that always happens every holiday season, right? There's always this brokenness, a relationship that happens. And uh, I have to admit, when the, the realization of what happened came to my mind, I immediately thought of just blowing it off. And I was just going to say, you know, it is what it is. Uh, We're not going to be pleasing everybody. Can't be in relationship, in a good relationship with everybody. We're just going to forget about it. And I tried to blow it off. And it was like God wouldn't let me let this go. He kept pushing me. He kept pushing me and said, you need to do something about this. And I just wanted to forget about it and move on. This person is geographically far away from me. I'm probably not going to see a lot of them. I could just move on with this relationship as it is and forget about it. But it was almost like there was this thorn in my heart that God was pushing, saying, no, you need to do something about this. And so I knew that God was calling me to reconcile this relationship and to make it uh, what it was before, which was a great relationship. And so I contacted this person, and they at first said, no, forget it. And I contacted them again. There's this resistance. But eventually it was all set up. We're going to meet the Friday after Thanksgiving, and we're going to have this discussion. So I was in one Chicago suburb. I had to drive about an hour to another Chicago suburb to meet this person. And on the drive, as I'm driving to meet this person, you know what I'm doing? I'm rehearsing my speech. 
right? I'm kind of thinking through how this is going to go, what I'm going to say. I shut the radio off, and I'm starting to just think through. I'm going to start this way, and I'm going to say this thing, and I'm going to tell, and I, and I will apologize. I'll say I'm sorry, but then I'm going to tell them why I did what I did, and I'm going to explain to them why they were wrong and I was right, and I'm going to lay all this out, and then I'm going to say, and here's how this is going to work going forward, and I'm going to do all, and it was like God came and said, I want you to forget the speech. I don't want you to be prepared for this meeting. I don't, and that's hard for a preacher to go into a meeting and not be prepared. He said, I don't want you to be prepared. Just forget about what you say. All I want you to do is go, and the first thing I want you to say is tell the person how much you love them, how much you want a relationship with them, that you are sorry for what you did, and you want to ask for forgiveness. And that's all I want you to say. And then I will take it from there, and you'll know what to say from that point on. But that's the only speech you're going to get. And it was driving me crazy because I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to explain why. I wanted Because there was an injustice that happened that they weren't understanding, but God wasn't concerned about what I thought was unjust. God was saying, this is what I want you to do. So I got there. I walked to the parking lot. We met. We exchanged pleasantries. We sat down. And the first thing I said is, you know what? I love you. And I love our relationship. And I am so sorry that we are where we are now. And I know that I did things that I shouldn't have done, and I own those. And I just want to say, will you please forgive me for that? And it was like something broke. And there was a a molding of hearts, and we picked up right where we left off. And it was an amazing time together that I know set straight, and it's going to be good going forward. But when you see God move in the realness of life, he becomes great in your heart. Now, don't look at me and say, oh, Dan, you're such a great guy. I was a stinker through all this. I pushed against God, and it was God that came and did this amazing thing. And when he moves in the middle of our real-life stuff, we see how great he is. And his greatness is expanded to the point where he should be praised. This is real-deal stuff. The next thing that happened to Mary's heart, it says that her spirit rejoices in God in verse 47. And a better way to... to, uh, Translate that based off the original Greek language there is that uh, in past tense, my spirit rejoiced, E-D, past tense, in God. Because the way this is worded here, it's talking about there was a special one-time moment that caused continuous rejoicing. Something happened in Mary's life that was a one-time moment that was so powerful and so great that it caused her to live a lifetime of continuous rejoicing. That one-time moment was probably when the angel came, announced what was going to happen, and then boom, she was pregnant with the Son of God. There was this one-time moment that caused this continuous rejoicing. And it tells us this, that God seeks people whose entire inner person is expanded to worship him. God's desire is this Christmas season that you would open your heart to a deeper level of the greatness of God. That you would transfer a little more ownership over to him and yield a little less of ownership of yourself. That you would give him a little more time and give up a little more time that you keep for yourself, that you would allow a little more thought towards God versus thoughts towards yourself and your own life, that your heart could be expanded. God will meet you in that place, and he will give you the power to do that, and it will be incredible. Verse 47, it says, 
My spirit rejoiced or, or rejoices in God my Savior. You see, Mary wasn't perfect. She wasn't sinless. She needed a Savior, and she knew that, and she acknowledges it. It's part of her song, my Savior. And when she cried out to her Savior rejoicing in this, she was overwhelmed with humility and said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And it wasn't a thing where she was like, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It wasn't like that at all. It was, oh my goodness, God is doing something so amazing and so great in the here and now that every generation after this will look and see what God did and that God chose me, this humble teenage girl, to bring about his amazing plan to save an entire world and to bring those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and bring him to heaven. God would do that through me? It blew her mind. It made her overwhelmed that all generations will look and see the greatness of God in this whole thing completely shocked this teenage girl. And what did it do in her life? It caused an amazing humility to take place. She was, so she was overwhelmed by the praise of God. She was overwhelmed in wonder. She was overwhelmed in wonder of God. Look at verses 49 to 50. Because the mighty one has done great things for me, his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. She becomes overwhelmed in wonder because she sees all God does, not just through her, which is pretty amazing when you think about what just happened, but all that he does throughout the world. And she summarizes three things about God in this part of her song. First, she summarizes and says that God is powerful. And she talks about his power in verse 49, because the mighty one has done great things. She sees herself insignificant compared to the power of God. This mighty one who's moving all over the world, doing amazing things. This is not just the God who makes virgins conceive, but this is also the God who removes hearts of stone and replaces them with soft hearts that can respond to him. This is the God who's present in difficult circumstances. This is the God whose presence can be trusted during trials. This is the God who brings us from sinful enemies of God and reconciles us back into his friendship with him and relationship with him. This is the God who forgives us of our sins. This is the God who heals our regrets and the things that we wish we can go back and change. This is the God who heals us from all the things that hurt us. This is the God who fights for the injustices in the world. And it causes her to rejoice. The next thing that leaves her in wonder is not just his power, but his holiness. It says... He has done great things for me, and his name is holy. She's not just saying that like a title. Like we have to give God another title. His name's holy. She's saying because he is so holy, that's what we just have to call him. Holy means set apart. That he's inherently different than us. Sometimes when we're in this thing on earth for a while, we think like God's just like us, but maybe a little bit better. Nothing can be further from the truth. God is in a class all by himself. God is amazing, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere at once, God. He is so set apart, so holy, sinless, faultless, perfect in power and wisdom. 
We have to be careful how we picture God, and that's why we, we need to constantly go to this book and let these words dictate our picture of who God is. Because if we picture God just in our own experiences or what we think of our own thoughts or what we uh, picture God to be like, we will, fo- we will fall woefully short. God is revealed in his word and he is amazingly holy, amazingly set apart from who we are. And yet he interacts with his people and brings us into relationship with him. And finally, she says that God is merciful. Look at verse 50. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. If there was ever one word to describe how God interacts with human beings, it would be mercy. If there was one word that describes how God deals with his people, it would be mercy. And this says in every generation, his mercy is certain. And we know that is true. You know why? Because we are here alive, breathing air right now. If God was fair, which a lot of people say we want God to be fair, none of us would be here. Because the Bible says all of us have fallen woefully short of what God wants us to do. We've all fallen short of God's calling because we've all sinned in our deeds, in our thoughts, in our words, in our intentions. People don't have to learn how to sin. We are born with this sinful nature that is in rebelliousness against God. And if God was fair, he would just wipe every human being right off the planet into eternal conscious punishment forever. But God is merciful. He's merciful. And because he's mercy, every human being is alive today so they could hear the message of hope of what Jesus Christ did because Jesus Christ came to earth to go to a cross to die for our sins that when we place our faith and trust in him, now God forgives us and we're brought into a relationship with him. That's why he came. God is so merciful. And what Mary is saying here is this act of mercy that God is sending his son to this world to save people from their sins, to be brought into a relationship with him, signifies how merciful God is, that he's a merciful God. And it says here, as mercy goes on to generation, on those who fear him. There's a general mercy that's covered in all humanity, that all humanity experiences. But there's a special mercy here for those who revere God. There's a special mercy here for those who worship him and acknowledge who he is and invite, them, invite him into their lives. It's an invitation that God longs for every human being to do. Tim Keller says this, because of Christmas, look at what God has done to get you to know him personally. If the Son of God would come all this way to become a real person to you, don't you think the Holy Spirit will do anything in his power to make Jesus a real person to your heart? Christmas is an invitation by God that says, look what I have done to come near to you. Now draw near to me. Then Tim Keller says this. Don't miss this in this quote. He says, God in Christmas says, I don't want to become a concept to you. I want to be an eternal friend. I don't want to become a concept. I want to become an eternal friend. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you repent of your sin and you believe in who he is, you are transferring the concept of God to friendship with God that will last forever when you die and go to heaven. So Mary was overwhelmed that she was the instrument that would bring this amazing eternal gift, the greatest news that can ever come to any human race 
but she was also overwhelmed with the anticipation of what God would do. Look at verses 51 to 53. It says, He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of their thoughts, of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. It's amazing because what Mary's doing is she's looking forward to all the things that the person she's carrying, Jesus Christ, in her womb is going to do. All these things are written in the past tense. Did you notice that? He has done a mighty deed. He's scattered. He has toppled. He's exalted. He has satisfied. All these things are in the past tense, but she is prophesying, saying, this is what the Messiah that I'm carrying in my womb is going to do when he comes to earth. She is speaking in future tense, but she's doing it with a past tense wording. The reason she's doing that is because she knows who she's carrying in her womb. She knows she's carrying the Son of God, the Almighty One, and when he says he's going to do something, it's as if it's done. She knows that all the things that Jesus promised in the Old Testament is going to happen is going to happen. And so when she calls forth these things that Jesus Christ is going to do during his time on earth, she knows that it is like they are already done because that's the character of God and that's who he is. She speaks these things forward like they already happened because she knows who Jesus is. This is Jesus. This is what he does And I love when you look at how she wrote this, this song. I love the the words in these songs because it captures something about God that we can miss, that his ways are not our ways. If you think about how the world changes the world and makes it a better place, they use power and position and money. And look at what he does. He disarms those things. He turns it upside down. He scatters the proud those empowered thoughts. He topples the mighty from their thrones and he lifts up the lowly. He satisfies the hunger and sent the rich away empty. He takes all the ways that human beings think of how to change the world and make a difference and he flips it upside down and says, no, we're going to do it through the power of God. And power of God means we use the lowly, the humble, the people that we least expect, the circumstances that we least expect are going to be the great things. That's what he's going to do. That's who Jesus is. These things that Mary were singing about are so true. And we've already seen them come to pass. And they're still being processed. And more will come. Jesus came and he totally changed the world. And you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you've been coming to church, you'd probably say amen to that. But Jesus changed the world in ways that people don't even realize. I want to look at six ways Jesus changed the world quickly. First of all, he changed the world when it came to children. In the ancient world, when a child was born, oftentimes they were neglected. Oftentimes they were forgotten. They weren't taken care of like we take care of kids. In the ancient world, children were routinely left to die of exposure, particularly if they were girls. But because of Jesus' treatment and admonishments of children, it led to the forbidding of such practices. And after the time of Jesus, it was the first time that orphanages were established and kids who didn't have parents were taken care of. The life of Jesus changed education. The ancient world loved education, but it tended to be reserved for the elite. The notion that every child was born in God's image helped fuel the move to universal literacy and learning. 
Love of learning led to institutions and universities like Cambridge and Oxford and Princeton and Harvard. They all began with Jesus-inspired efforts to love God with all your mind. Compassion. Jesus turned the world upside down and brought compassion. Jesus' compassion for the poor and the sick led to institutions for those who had diseases. Did you know that the modern-day hospital was started because of the life of Jesus Christ? People started establishing hospitals. They were the first voluntary charitable organization to take care of people who were sick, all because of how Jesus flipped the world upside down with his values and what he said was important. Humility. The ancient world did not view the virtue of humility highly. Jesus' life as a foot-washing servant would eventually lead to the adoption of humility as a widely admired virtue and value. Historian John Dixon says, it's unlikely that any of us would ever aspire to be humble were it not for the historical impact of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. It changed how people view what's good and what's bad. Forgiveness. In the ancient world, virtue meant rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. If someone hurt you or took advantage of you, then you draw a wall and you take guard and you avenge them. An alternative idea came from Galilee. What is best in life is to love your enemies and see them reconciled to yourself. That was Jesus' way. He turned the world upside down in the area of forgiveness, humanitarian reform. Jesus consistently championed the excluded. His inclusion of women led to a community to which women flocked in unbelievable numbers to hear this rabbi Jesus speak. Slaves who made up a third of the ancient world's population might wander into a church fellowship and now instead of being beaten by masters, the masters go and they wash the feet of the slaves because of what Jesus Christ modeled in his life. In fact, early church bishops were told not to interrupt worship to greet a wealthy attender, but sit on the floor and welcome the poor, which is something that had never been done prior to Jesus' time on earth. You see, Jesus changed the world in these ways and so many others. And he's not done yet. He's still moving and changing hearts and lives. Finally, Mary was overwhelmed by another way. She was overwhelmed with hope. Overwhelmed with hope in God. Look at verses 54 and 55 of this song. He has helped, past tense again, his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. There's this guy named Abraham that we read about in Genesis chapter 12, where God came to him and said, I, through you, through your lineage, I'm going to bring the Messiah, the Son of God. And what Mary is saying here is what's happening to me was spoken long ago to that guy Abraham, and throughout thousands and thousands of years, we are told that this is what's going to happen, and now it's finally here. It's finally going to take place. The hope that a whole generation and generation and generation of people put in a coming Messiah who would come and overcome evil and change the world completely is now here among us at hand. She was announcing that what was happening to Mary was not this new thing that God was doing. What was happening to Mary is what was been spoken about for thousands and thousands of years and now is finally here. 
The creator of the universe is beginning and establishing a new kingdom that will abolish the ramifications of sin and bring a sinful human race into relationship with a holy God. The king that is coming through Mary is going to abolish sickness and brokenness and bring healing and joy, will abolish the injustices and make all that is done in the world wrong, done right. The good he has intended is going to happen and is starting right now with me. See, that's why Mary was a person of hope. These were dark days. These people wondered, is God there? Is God going to do something? And Mary said, it's true. All that we talked about and heard about in church is true, and he's doing it. It's happening right now. It's going to start. And when you are walking through life and you're wondering, is God going to do something? I want you to know it's true. He is Because the second advent is coming. The second time when Jesus is going to come, what he started through Mary, he's going to finalize and fulfill when he comes again. And all the wrongs in our world will be made right. And there will be no more sin, no more brokenness, no more disease. God is coming in a powerful way. And so the advent is a time of hope. I love the fact that the first candle that we light in the advent season is called the candle of hope. Because it immediately reminds us that no matter how dark and desperate our world gets, no matter what you experience in this life, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. You see, there's one thing that every single one of us in this room is going to experience that we're never, ever going to get out of. It's something that we cannot change. It's something that we cannot alter. Every single one of us has this in common. We will all experience a time when we die. Every single one of us will experience a time where this life that we get so obsessed with is going to come to an end. And the Bible tells us the minute, the second our life here ends, we will stand before God. We will see Jesus as he truly appears. Right now, the Bible says we see God through a dimly broken glass, but one day we're going to see him clear as a bell. And in that moment that we all are going to experience, no one's going to get out of it, we have this all in common. There's no way you can dodge it. There's no way you can delay it. We're all going to experience a moment where we're going to die and we're going to stand before God and we're going to see Jesus as he is. And what I think is going to happen in that moment when we see him, we're going to say, Jesus, I knew you were great, but I had no idea you were this great. Jesus, I knew you were merciful, but I had no idea you were this merciful. Jesus, I knew you were loving, but I had no idea you were this loving. I knew you could be trusted, kind of. I had no idea how you could be trusted and how I wasted so much anxiety when this is really who you are. See, I think we're going to see a side of God that we've never seen in our lives. And then I think we're going to say this. If I knew then on earth what I see now, it would have changed how I lived forever. If I would have known on earth what you're truly like, it would have changed everything. See, Christmas season is here for us to crack open our hearts a little bit, to say, God, will you take what you're really like and open my heart a little bit more to see and grasp that. 
that I could understand and be changed because when I see you as you truly are, I know it will change everything. Let's pray this Christmas that happens to us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the testimony and the words, the songs of this teenage girl that you blew away. How you fulfilled every promise you had. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your greatness. Will you expand our vision of you in such a way that it would leave us in awe and wonder? God, I pray for Crossview Church. I ask that this Christmas season we would become a people of awe and wonder at who you are. I ask that you would tear down old pictures of how we picture you and think that you're like, that aren't true, that are false. Would you break those false images of you? And would you give us an amazing Christmas gift to see you a little more clearly, to experience you a little more fully, that our hearts would be transformed at who you are. Overwhelm us this Christmas season with awe and wonder of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.